Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 70, The One God and His Son According to John When it comes to God and Jesus, does the fourth gospel contradict the first three? Some scholars have thought so. Everyone agrees that John was written last, and many have seen an evolution from lower to higher Christologies. The idea is that in Mark, Jesus is a human Messiah, full stop. But by the time we get to John, Jesus is not only a Messiah, but a God-man, either God himself in human form, or at least God the Son, equally divine with God the Father. I disagree with this evolutionary hypothesis about New Testament Christology, and so do many recent scholars. We think that while each of the four Gospels has its own distinct voice, terminology, and interests, their pictures of God and Jesus are basically consistent. But I think some such scholars have got it backwards. Trying to show the fundamental agreement of the Gospels, some have argued that even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is God Himself and or God the Son, as divine as God the Father. I think that case simply can't be made. It goes hard against the grain of the texts. In my view, the fourth has been the most misunderstood Gospel. In the Gospel according to John, just as in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is God's human Messiah, not God Himself, not a God-man, not the second person of the Trinity, consubstantial with the Father, and not equally divine with the Father. Both patristic theologians and recent evangelical apologists have, in their zeal, misread this book, the former seeing it as anticipating 4th century creeds, and the latter simply confusing Jesus and God and projecting that confusion onto the author of this gospel. In this talk, presented on November 8, 2014, at the Society of Christian Philosophers meeting at Niagara University, I sketch out a case that John's central message is that Jesus is God's human Messiah. Leaving aside any controversial theses, I stick with the indisputable tools of logic, a few self-evident truths, and the clear statements of this gospel. Do I make a convincing case? Why or why not? Let us know at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. There's a link there where you can upload some audio feedback, something you did on a voice recorder, on an iPhone, or on your computer. Also at the blog post is a link to this talk on YouTube, which has my simple slides. But I think in this case, my talk is just about as understandable without the slides. Over then to me. Hi, welcome. Thank you for coming. In this paper, I shall assume only that the gospel attributed to the Apostle John is a mostly self-consistent composition. I shall not assume that this book is actually by him, that it has a single author, or that it was all or mostly written in the first century, but only that it manages, for the most part, to express a coherent view about God and Jesus. However, my arguments will be consistent with the most traditional assumptions about this book, that it was authored by the Apostle John alone in the 80s or 90s, and that it is divinely inspired, even inerrant. For convenience, I'll speak of the book as having one author. In my experience, many Christians misread the Gospel according to John in one of two ways. The first way is taking the point of the book to be that Jesus is God himself, God in human form. These readers focus on what I call the traditional identity passages in John, they include the word was God, his opponents say he's making himself equal to God, he says before Abraham was I am, he says I and the Father are one, his opponents say that he's making himself God, he says whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and then at the end Thomas says to him seemingly, my Lord and my God. Let's call this the Jesus as God himself reading and contrast it with a related interpretation this is reading the book as implicitly teaching the 4th century doctrine that Jesus is of one usia, of one essence or substance with his Father, which makes Jesus and his Father equally divine and one God. This way is often thought to be consistent with the first reading, but unlike the first, the second arguably allows that the Father and Son are numerically distinct, 
as is required by any well-constructed Trinity theory. Admittedly, the book has little to no explicit theological metaphysics, but it is believed that the words and deeds of Jesus and the way others treat him clearly reveal him as divine and not only human. Indeed, many have imagined that this book comes closer than any other in the New Testament to actually implying the late 4th century Trinity doctrine. But let's more modestly call this the Jesus as fully divine reading of this gospel, where a main point of it is that Jesus has a or the divine nature, which makes him, in some sense, the same God as the one he calls his Father. I shall argue that both interpretations go hard against the grain of this text, read according to its own internal logic and in its own context, using its own universe of concepts and assumptions. We'll look at some of those shortly, but an initial point is that it's perverse to ignore an author's own thesis, his explicit main point. A competent author who's writing nonfiction will clearly and repeatedly present his thesis to the reader. Our author is more than competent. He writes at the end of the climactic 20th chapter, these signs are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Somehow another chapter was tacked on after this one. This seems to have been the original ending of the book, and it clearly tells us the book's thesis. And this thesis comes as no surprise to the careful reader. In the very first chapter after the famous prologue, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed, the King of Israel, the Son of Man from Daniel 7. So a veritable cornucopia of messianic titles is heaped upon Jesus right in the first chapter. Later he said to be the savior of the world, the prophet who is to come into the world, that is the prophet like Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18, and the Holy One of God. In every single case, the Jewish assumption is that a person bearing that title or description would not be God himself, but rather a special human agent from God, sent and empowered by God. Just as Messiah is presumably not self-anointed, so a prophet isn't the God who sent him, and Daniel's son of man is not, in Daniel 7, the Ancient One, not God himself, but rather someone who comes before the Ancient One and is enthroned by the Ancient One. And it should go without saying that the king of Israel is someone other than the God of Israel. This is one powerful reason to deny that the point of the book is to tell us that Jesus and God are one and the same, that Jesus is God himself. And common sense points in the same direction. Every sane adult knows that nothing can at one time be and not be a certain way. In this way, we know that entities which differ truly are two entities and not one. If jurors know, for instance, that the killer was in Seattle on the night of the crime and that the accused was in Chicago for that whole night, then they know that the killer and the accused are two. Things which have, do, will, or even could differ in the smallest way, we know to be two things and not one thing thought of in two ways. If the jurors should know, somehow, that the killer and the accused are alike in every known way, except that the killer had 10,000 hairs on his head on a certain day 10 years before the murder, whereas the accused had 9,999 hairs same day 10 years before the murder, they would know the killer and the accused to be two. Common sense also requires what philosophers call the principle of charity. This is roughly that we should try hard to interpret an author or a speaker as self-consistent. This author says that the one God is unseen, whereas Jesus is seen. And he tells us that the one God sent his son, but there's no mention of Jesus having any son whom he might have sent. During Jesus' ministry then, this author seems to believe that God is unseen while Jesus is seen, and that the one God has sent his son, but that Jesus has not sent any son of his. If he is consistent then, this author does not think God and Jesus to be one and the same. It is very uncharitable to attribute views to this author, such as that Jesus and God are and are not numerically one, or the confusion that Jesus and God are numerically one, even though they have differed. We could pile on many differences that this book seems to assume or assert between the one God and Jesus, the Son of God, but of course one is enough to imply that they are numerically two and not numerically one. This rules out the first Jesus as God himself interpretation. So, motivated by charity, we need to look at these traditional identity passages 
and see if there are any well-motivated, understandable readings of them which do not imply the numerical identity of God and His Son. In my experience, this is not difficult to do. The various contexts do most of the work for us. But before we do that, we should look at two passages which clearly and directly show that this author assumes God and Jesus to be two. He tells us who the one God is, and it's not Jesus, but rather the one whom Jesus addresses as Father. In John 17, we read, After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Father is the only true God, then no one else is. The passage assumes that for any X, X is true God only if X is numerically the same as the Father. This rules out not only the Jesus is God himself reading of this book, but also the Jesus as fully divine reading if full divinity implies that Jesus is God himself, or the Trinitarian claim that the one God is the sum or the whole consisting of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Following Catholic tradition, call that threesome the Trinity. Indisputably, the Trinity isn't the Father. They differ, and so are numerically too. But then if the Father himself is the only true God, then nothing else is, not even the Trinity, and no, not even the Son of God. Some apologists and theologians will object, saying, of course the Father is the one true God, but that doesn't exclude the Son from also being the one true God. In reply, this misunderstands the assumption which is clearly revealed in Jesus' prayer. He assumes not only that the Father is true God, which by itself might be consistent with someone else also being true God, but also he assumes that for anything, whatever, if it is true God, then it just is the Father. The objector misreads the words, the only, refusing to see quantification in the assumption, that is, telling us that the Father is the only true God and not just a true God. To put it differently, the assumption is not merely that the Father has the feature one true Godness, which might be consistent with someone else also having that feature, but rather the assumption is that the number of true gods is one. The Father is the only true God. This is logically inconsistent with anything and anyone numerically distinct from the Father also being true God, even Jesus or the Trinity. Further, on the face of it, this assumption is inconsistent with the claim of the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is true God from true God, which implies two true gods, two who are properly so-called, and not only one. Thus, this passage is trouble not only for the Jesus as God himself interpretation, but also for the harder to pin down, but more traditional, Jesus as fully divine interpretation. The same is true of a famous conversation in chapter 20, where the risen Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. His statement here clearly assumes the existence of one who is four things, namely, Jesus' Father, his disciples' Father, Jesus' God, and his disciples' God. And evidently this one is not Jesus, but rather someone else. Jesus can't be his own God, and he can't be his own Father. And the one God can't be Jesus, because the one God, unlike Jesus, doesn't have a God over him. The obvious Jewish background assumption is that Jesus here is talking about Yahweh. It is the one God, Yahweh, whom he addresses as Father, and to whom he is about to ascend. All this would be obvious to any informed early reader of this gospel, and it would be equally obvious to her that Yahweh and Jesus here are supposed to be two beings, not one. But isn't Jesus described or addressed as God in this very book? Surely we must consider those passages as well. Interestingly, it turns out to be less than clear that Jesus is ever described as or addressed as God in this gospel, though he is so called in a few other places in the New Testament, such as Hebrews chapter 1. But before we get to that, let's take care that we don't rely on junk arguments, as many apologists and theologians do. We should all agree, for entirely non-theological reasons, that this argument is invalid. That is, that the conclusion does not follow from the premises. Let's call it the same name argument, where premise one is God is properly called God, premise two is Jesus is properly called God, 
And the conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is numerically identical to God. Everyone knows that names, titles, and descriptions can be ambiguous. That is, they can, in various contexts, be properly applied to more than one being. Believe it or not, I know that at least recently there has been at least one other Dale Tuggy in the world. Even the goofiest of names can be shared. And so, in principle, can the highest and most exalted names, titles, or descriptions, even God. The same name argument, then, is hopeless. Being invalid, it can't be sound. But a person might have in mind a similar but more sophisticated argument, which actually is valid. We'll call this the unshared name argument. For any X, X is properly called God only if X is numerically identical to God. Jesus is properly called God, therefore Jesus is numerically identical to God. Everyone should agree the conclusion does follow from the premises. The first premise says that there is only one, God, who can be properly addressed or described as God. The second premise tells us that Jesus is like that. So it follows that Jesus must be that one, that is, that Jesus is God himself. But according to Jesus himself, as reported in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, premise one is false. Jesus there argues that if there's no problem with the scriptures calling various human beings gods, then there should be no problem with Jesus, who is greater than those people, getting the lesser title, God's Son. What had started this argument was Jesus' statement that the Father and I are one, which his interlocutors foolishly misunderstand as Jesus, quote, making himself God, or a God, can be translated. But after making the correction just noted, Jesus again restates that he and God are about the same business. They are one in purpose. The idiom here is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.8, where he refers to various apostolic workers as if they were farmers saying, quote, he who plants and he who waters are one, which less literal translations correctly render as one in purpose, that is, about the same business of spreading the gospel. Back to John 10, the foolish reader, hearing his cherished claim on the lips of the Jews that Jesus is making himself God, argues, see, Jesus' contemporaries understood what he was implying. But these are not just any contemporaries. The wise reader notes that throughout the Gospel of John, the Jews, that is, Jesus' opponents among the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, are consistently portrayed as spiritually blind, as comically literal-minded, and as regularly misinterpreting Jesus' teachings. To exaggerate a little, they are theological clowns in this book. The wise reader also notes that Jesus corrects them about what he is claiming to be, not God or a God, but rather God's Son. According to our author then, and if you believe him, Jesus himself, the unshared name argument is unsound because its first premise is false. But creative hint-hunting exegesis dies hard. One might concede that both arguments are unsound, but maintain that the overall pattern of language in this book is best explained by the hypothesis that the author thinks that Jesus is God himself, or by the hypothesis that Jesus has a divine nature. I've already argued that the first hypothesis is a non-starter, as it would read this author as multiply inconsistent with himself. But some will hold firm, urging that the author is content to propose mysteries, that is, apparent contradictions about God and Jesus. And in favor of either hypothesis, many would urge that the book opens and closes with Jesus being called God. Let's look at John 1 and John 20 to see whether or not this is so. The first question to answer about the famous prologue in John 1 is whether or not the beginning spoken of here refers to the time of creation or whether it rather refers to the beginning of the gospel era, as that phrase, uh, NRK, seems to refer to in 1 John 1.1 and in Mark 1.1. So those books start off referring to the beginning, but it's clearly like the beginning of Jesus' ministry or the beginning of the new era or something like that. We could then take the creation language in what follows to concern what Paul calls the new creation by Jesus. But I think on the whole, it must be the Genesis creation which is in view here. The main reason is that the word here is a familiar character from the Old Testament. 
Psalm 33, 6 says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all their host by the breath of his mouth. Although almost always in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord is simply the message which God gives to a prophet. In Psalm 33, it refers to the means by which God made all things, referencing the recurrent phrase, God said in Genesis 1. Again, in Isaiah 55, God's word, in that case, in the Septuagint, it's rhema, not logos. In Isaiah 55, the word is personified as an agent who does God's bidding. The first readers of this gospel would have read Psalm 33 in the Septuagint translation, which uses the word logos for word. The first verse of John tells us that this logos was with God in the beginning. And that phrase, with God, is supposed to remind the reader of another passage in the Jewish Bible, Proverbs chapter 8, where it is said that wisdom, here personified as a woman, was beside God, seemingly helping him in the process of creating. Of course, the reader of this section of Proverbs knows that wisdom here is not really a lady, but is rather an attribute which God has and which we can have to a lesser degree. And so the reader is supposed to think that the word of the Lord in Psalm 33:6 isn't another agent, God's helper. It's just an attribute or action of God, such as a command or intention. What God's word does is just what God does. Back to John 1, we are told that this word existed in the beginning, that he, this personified divine property or action, uh, that he was with God and that he was God. It seems there are two ways to take this clause, he was God. Either it is predicating divinity of the word, or it is identifying the word as God himself. If we assume, as so many interpreters do, that this word is the pre-human Jesus, then this identity of the word with God makes no sense. Keep in mind that the word God, Greek, hotheos, in the New Testament nearly always refers to the one Jesus addressed as Father. On these assumptions, the passage would mean, in the beginning was the pre-human Jesus, and Jesus was with the Father, and Jesus was the Father. Not only does this wrongly identify Jesus and the Father, it doesn't fit well with the repeated statement that the Word was in the beginning with God. We do not usually say that someone is with himself. It makes more sense then to take the clause, the word was God, as predicating divinity of the word. But if there's only one God, won't this imply the identity of this word and God? The solution, I believe, is to take a clue from Proverbs 8 and realize that this word is something like a divine thought, an unspoken word, which is here personified. All things came into being through him, literally through it, and without him, not one thing came into being. He, the word of God, was the thought or message that was the light of all people. He's the true light which would come into the world in the man Jesus. He, God's word, the true light, was indeed in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. Even when God's word came to the world, which had been made through him, through the word of God, people did not accept the word of God. But those who believed God's word became children of God. In this way, I suggest we can read the prologue as not directly speaking about Jesus until verse 14, which says, And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. It is nonsense that something which existed eternally as a divine attribute or a thought in God's mind or a divine action should literally become a human being. Happily, there's no reason to attribute this sort of nonsense to our author. His thought is rather that God's wisdom, message, thought, or plan came into the world, so to speak, in the man Jesus. And there are parallel ideas in some of the other uh, intertestamental literature, which we don't have time to get into, but I think it's an important part of the case as well that the reader would recognize the incarnation spoken of in verse 14 as non-literal. Is Jesus called God at the end of this prologue in verse 18? Maybe. There are four variant readings of that verse. It says, no one has ever seen God. It is something. 
who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. And there are four readings, the only begotten, the only begotten Son, the only begotten God, and or an only begotten God, just without the definite article. There are complex textual critical arguments to be considered here, but it is clear in light of what we've seen so far that no crucial interpretive point will hinge on which reading is correct. The writer might well call Jesus God, even though he thinks that the one true God is the Father and not Jesus. But arguably, this is a case where the contents of the readings and not only their textual bases should be taken into account. There has grown a consensus that only begotten here should be taken as idiomatic for unique. If that's correct, then the first two readings, the unique one or the unique son, easily fit the other contents of this book. But the third and fourth, the unique God or a unique God, would be strange given that, as we've seen, chapter 17 features Jesus saying that someone else is the only true God. The other alleged Jesus as God bookend is in chapter 20, when the former doubter Thomas, seeing the risen Jesus, exclaims, My Lord and my God. What could be more clear? Hasn't Thomas called Jesus God or addressed Jesus as his God? It is doubtful, for this exchange comes 11 verses after Jesus had just said that the Father is both his and his disciples, God. And Jesus isn't his own Father. Does Thomas here name Jesus as a second God? As we've seen, that is conceivable. But here's a reading that fits more easily with this Gospel. Let us remember that surely decades before this gospel was written, Paul had written that for us Christians, there is but one God, the Father. And in addition, there is one Lord, Jesus. This was a double confession of the one God along with the one human Messiah, now exalted to God's right hand and so addressed by the kingly title, Lord. It is easier to read Thomas as making a double confession like this that Jesus truly is Lord, and that the one God has made him so. God really was at work in this man. That would be Thomas's point. This has been a central theme in the book so far. Thomas realizes that Jesus and his God truly are one, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father, not because Jesus is the Father, but rather because Jesus is like the Father. Thomas, finally having obtained the eyes of faith, now sees the Father in Jesus. Part of Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 has been fulfilled for Thomas. He prayed, quote, As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. End quote. Thomas has seen the Father in Jesus, and Jesus in the Father, and having believed, is now himself in both Father and Son. After Thomas's confession, Jesus says, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And the reader recalls from chapters 1 and 4 that God is unseen because he is a spirit. Thomas has literally seen Jesus, but as we know, Jesus is not God. Thomas already believed in God, but now he's also come to believe in Jesus, the risen Lord. He's taken Jesus' advice from chapter 14, quote, believe in God, believe also in me, end quote. Despite later traditions, it's clear that this book distinguishes the one true God from Jesus. It simply will not bear the Jesus as God himself interpretation. Still, many thoughtful Christians want a creedally Trinitarian theology that acknowledges the distinctness of Jesus and his Father and of Jesus and his God. They may reply, doesn't this book portray Jesus as making himself equal to God? And aren't his words, his deeds, and how others treat him inexplicable unless we suppose that Jesus has a divine nature? In chapter 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. For this, some of his Jewish opponents give him grief. But Jesus answered them, my father is still working, and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his father, thereby making himself equal to God. 
Many a reader, seeing her desired theory stated that Jesus is equal to God, stops there. Notice that this seems to be the opinion not of the author, but rather of the Jews, whom it is perilous to trust. And the rest of this chapter, immediately following, makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is not equal with God. To the contrary, he only follows God's lead, and God has given him the rights of judgment and honor. It goes without saying that God himself doesn't get those rights from anyone else. The Father has sent his Son and has granted that the Son also should have life in himself. This is part of what's said later in that chapter. Moreover, God testifies on behalf of Jesus by making possible Jesus' mighty deeds. In sum, it doesn't sound like claiming equality with God to say that, quote, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek to do not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, end quote. He says to these faithless people, how can you believe when you accept glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the one who alone is God? The phrase, the one who alone is God, here refers to the Father. In sum, there's nothing here that requires Jesus to have a divine nature. But doesn't he say that before Abraham was, I am? Yes, although in my view it should be understood in the sense before Abraham was, I was, in God's plan, already the Messiah. This is a way that in Jewish literature they speak about what's predestined. They put it as having already been in the past or even in the present. The chapter and the book make clear that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, not the God who sent the Messiah, or someone just as divine as that God. But let's consider two other readings of the verse. Suppose Jesus really is here applying a divine name to himself, a name that only the one God can use. That would fit the Jesus as God himself interpretation of this book, which, as we've seen, is a bad one on multiple counts. Suppose, rather, that the claim is merely of pre-existence. We would then translate, as some versions do, before Abraham was, I already existed. This would be an extraordinary claim, but notice that it is consistent with, but doesn't support either the Jesus as God himself interpretation or the Jesus as fully divine interpretation of this book. It's consistent with the pre-existence claim that God created Jesus long before Abraham's life. What about Jesus' many miracles in this gospel? Don't those, as many ancient Catholics argue, show that Jesus had a divine nature and not only a human one? Well, that's one theory about how Jesus managed to perform miracles. But this book seems to support a rival theory. In chapter 14, Jesus says, The Father who dwells in me does his works. How does Jesus do his miracles? By using his own divine nature? Well, how did Elijah and Moses do their miracles? By the Spirit of God. That is, it was God who was really exercising his supernatural powers to raise the dead, part the sea, and so on. This is the Jewish background assumption about prophets. Their miracles are really God's miracles. And those miracles are evidence that God really has sent that prophet. So it would seem with the Messiah, the predicted prophet like Moses, even though he is so much more than a prophet. And Jesus here repeatedly emphasizes that his words are not his own, but come from God. Quote, he whom God has sent speak the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure, end quote. It is by God's spirit that Jesus teaches his life-transforming message. In sum, quote, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works, end quote. To conclude, the Gospel of John doesn't permit the Jesus as God himself reading because this author believes that the Father, who is someone other than Jesus, is God himself. And the book undercuts the case and seems to provide no support for the Jesus' fully divine reading on which Jesus has a divine nature. Really, the book has nothing to say about natures or essences. It does emphasize that Jesus was a real man, which is part and parcel of its thesis that Jesus is God's unique Messiah. To believe this is to agree with the author. 
and it is to see this author as agreeing in his central claims about God and Jesus with the Synoptic Gospels, even though his Gospel is so strikingly different in style and content from those earlier Gospels. In all four Gospels, the one God is the Father, and Jesus is his human Messiah, his unique Son, who is now the risen Lord. Thank you. I have two questions. One, the first one has to do with your rejection of John 858 bit on the interpretation that he's claiming to be God there. Um, you didn't bring up like the very next verse, which is, I mean, the very next verse is they pick up stones to stone him, presumably for heresy. What would be heretical about calling himself the Messiah? There are passages in the Gospels, I think including the scene with the high, where he's before the high priest and Mark, where they seem to have a really broad idea of what counts as blasphemy. And so even making a false claim that you're the Messiah would be blasphemy. So it's possible to take it that way, but another way to take it would be that they're misunderstanding him, that they're jumping at the phrase, I am. Other people have pointed out that it's not just ego a me in the Septuagint translation of Moses. Uh, what God says to Moses in Exodus 3, it's ego e mi ha'on, I am the being, which a lot of translators are going to now consider a mistranslation and maybe a little bit uh, Hellenized. I would be inclined to take it as them misunderstanding him, like they think he is saying that he's God. I mean, I could have said more about this, but I'm trying to keep it short. The phrase ego e mi, I am, is idiomatic for I'm the one, and it very frequently is translated I am he, or something like that. So for instance, in the next chapter after chapter eight, the man born blind is being interrogated by the Jews after Jesus heals him. And they say, are you the guy that used to sit by the gate? And he says, ego e me. But earlier in chapter eight, Jesus says, you know, unless you believe, most translations will say that I am he, you will die in your sins. But you know, the context is that he's claiming to be the Messiah there. And I think they're correct to supply the, the he to make the sense of it accurately conveyed in English. They wanted to stop absolutely here. You could, for the same reasons, translate, before Abraham was, I am he. It's not strange to me, given that, as you said, uh, probably his interlocutors thought he was, in fact, claiming to be God. That's right, but don't forget my remark about the theological clowns. They're there to react and go nuts, right? They think he's, um, they think he's recommending um, cannibalism at one point. They think that to be born again, you need to somehow get back inside your mother. <laughs> so you've got to be careful saying that they understood his point. Uh, so, sorry. So the second question is, this is just, I mean, you didn't talk about, this maybe isn't super relevant, but um, I wondered what you do with respect to your rejection of the John 1 reading, uh, um, the word is like an actual, like that's the second person. Um, and you said it was a divine attribute of that day. What do you do with, um, I wonder what you do with Colossians 1, 13 through 20-ish or so, where, so Paul writes this letter, and it's here's before the Gospel of John was written, I suppose. And he claims there that Jesus, uh, all things are made by and through him. And in him all things hold together and so on and so forth. Um, so he seems to think, oh, and he was like the first well, law yeah. I, I, not, I don't want to get too much into Paul that talks about John, but yeah, I, I take it that it has to do with the new creation. He doesn't say that he made the heavens and the earth. He says he made all the things in the heavens and all the things in the earth. And so that's like reordering the, the heavenly powers or something like that. I take that as new creation. Yeah. Okay, so you're an Ebionite. And they didn't really Just a Christian. persist. Well, they were persistent, sort of. Okay, I don't claim to be a biblical scholar for sure. But by the time John, whoever it is, wrote the first gospel, was writing, we're into, the first, we're into the first century. You know, this is a little later than Philo. Now, you claim that the Logos talk was really metaphorical talk about an attribute. But if you look at this sort of heavy middle Platonism that you get in the final of Logos, 
is the demiurge. Yeah. Or something like the demiurge. Yes. Um, Sometimes. Stuff is flawed, yeah. yeah, but I mean, this place is saturated with And it looks like, at least reading it from that perspective, that's what the author of the gospel is talking about. That's the tradition that he's in. Now, the Septuagint, when was that written? When was the translation? Um, I think second century second BC. Century. So that's earlier, right? Yeah. So by the time you get to mm -hmm. this period when he's writing, mm -hmm. you know, Hellenism has become really overblown, yeah. and that's what we're getting. So Philo is a mess. And the place to look for this is a discussion by the uh, Harvard scholar Andrews Norton, mid-19th century scholar, big super heavyweight scholar. And he points out that some, sometimes Philo seems to think that the word, uh, the logos, is an attribute of God or an action of God. And sometimes he, he treats it really as a distinct agent and takes the platonic view that God can't directly create himself, but he has to create through an intermediary, which you do see in the second century fathers. So really, I mean, Philo is equivocal. And one important piece of evidence, I think, to keep in mind is that both Tertullian and Origen tell us that in their day, so in the early 200s, uh, still the common herd objects to the Logos theory that they are teaching two gods. And they're mocking this as the view of the unsophisticated Christians who aren't philosophically trained like them. And what you should infer from that is that the Logos theology, which really is developed in the second half of the 100s, really was new. And so they were thinking, well, though the one God is the creator, but now you've got a second creator, doesn't that mean you've got two gods? So I think this is evidence that people, if they did have John, they didn't necessarily read it in the Logos theology way, which, is, which people consider so obvious now. Okay, well, what this suggests is that the author of the fourth gospel was a mess in the same way that Father was a mess, and at least the notion of Logos Christology in the high sense as a separate agent was there also. I don't think anything follows about this author being a mess. One of the advantages of the reading that I suggested but didn't fully argue for is that it lets you see the background of this author as really not Hellenized. I don't think you need to bring in all the stuff, uh, any heavy distinctions from Stoicism, right? Proverbs 8 is enough along with, as I mentioned, some uh, similar thoughts from other Jewish writings. Say a little more about the father-son relation and your interpretation of that relation. The relation? Yeah, like, uh, you know, it's obviously not a biological relation, right? So, you know, I'm so, so like, you know, what, is, what does it mean for Jesus to have the Father and to be the Son of God? Like, how do you interpret it? For everything I argued, the author may think that Jesus pre-existed and, and is divine in some sense. As far if you mean the personal relationship between them, I think there is a personal relationship between them, and that's really a central feature of the gospel. The father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing. The son loves the father. They cooperate together one with the other. So I agree with the social Trinitarians that there really are two selves here that really are having an interpersonal relationship. I think that's really important. And that's something that drops out if you're not a social Trinitarian, but another kind. It almost always gets obscured if not, if you don't imply that it just, it, right? Because you, you, you tend to think that there's one self among the Trinity. Well, I mean, like, is, is there anything more to it than uh, an interpersonal relationship? Uh, is there something else that you can imply from this relationship? So, like, um, you can imply from, like, a biological father-son relationship. Yeah, it's all, it's all consistent with what two of the other Gospels say about the virginal conception of Jesus. It's all consistent with that. In fact, there's a variant textual reading. I don't think it's well attested, but there's a variant reading within the prologue that it's the part where it talks about people born of God's will and not of a human desire. There's a variant which makes that singular, so it sounds like Jesus is the one who is born of God's will and not of human desire. But in any case, it's consistent with the virginal birth Son of God in this gospel is a title of the Messiah. They're kind of like interchangeable titles. And so to call him the Son of God according to this author's vocabulary doesn't imply two natures or uh, that he's as divine as God is or any of this later stuff. Son of God can mean many things in Jewish literature. But one of the things it means is the Messiah. 
for for someone to call God their father? Could that mean different things, or does that have a, a unique kind of? Does it bear a unique relationship such that you know? Well, there is a unique relationship, of course. But you know, he says it's God is his father and our father. So, in a, in a different but related sense, we're sons of God, Christians. Yes. I'm wondering about levels of authorship here that I'm inclined to find plausible or really interesting to sort of get clear on what this first century author seems to be implying if we take uh, him in his context here. And yet the book gets canonized and um, thus gets put together into this compilation with other things and process of reflection about how to come up with a most consistent reading of this whole body and what it seems to attest, Colossians, whatever else. Can I give you your reading and be a Trinitarian too, or do you think the, uh, the tension is just too great, that there's a kind of authorship in putting it together into a master text, and then you know, sort of like people doing uh, constitutional interpretation, where you've got this unfolding body of doctrine mm -hmm. over time, and you're trying to create the greatest consistency you can in your approach right. to the body of text. Yeah, I mean, look, some people are Trinitarians because that's what the, that's what the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church teaches, or just the small c Catholic tradition teaches. And I'm claiming there's a conflict between that tradition and this book, which I wish there wasn't, but I think that there is. Um, so if you're okay with tradition contradicting, you know, what you probably, if you're a Christian, believe is a divinely inspired book, then that's okay. Now, if you're Protestant and you accept later tradition because it is correctly drawing out the consequences implied by these books, like if you take a classical reformed view of the councils, for instance, I accept the Athanasian Creed or the Chalcedon or um, Constantinople. I accept them because and only insofar as they accurately summarize the contents of divine revelation, which is the New Testament. Then, there, then you've got a problem. But I, you know, I just, uh, I'm, I'm a non-Catholic Christian, Protestant background, and so I'm willing to admit there to be contradictions between later tradition and the founding sources, and then I feel like I have to go with the founding sources. Two. One, I thought I heard you saying, but maybe I didn't hear it strongly enough, uh, that you were, in a number of these instances, claiming you could take it this way. But I would say that a more integral reading of this text, taken all by itself, would give you this. But that's not quite to say it excludes this other possibility Again, going with my metaphor of constitutional interpretation, you could say, okay, what kind of originalist reading, what was in the heads of mm -hmm. people who yeah. this amendment? Probably right. not, if we do the deep uh, textual scholarship and historical scholarship, yeah. what it will later come to mean. But when you put it together with all this other stuff, and you are tasked with giving an authoritative and guiding interpretation of the whole body of text, then you have to allow yourself to give a reading which may not be the most integral thing you would give for this text standing all alone, but is permitted by the text right. and helps you in other ways. Or, or you could be more radical. You could say what you know, Swinburne says about the Old Testament. Like, look, when the church uh, accepted this book, they thereby gave it whatever meaning they thought it should have. And so who cares what it originally meant to the author? Um, when it was accepted, we then gave it whatever meaning we gave it. And so you could say, yeah, I accept this in the sense that it was accepted by the councils in the 300s. I'm not comfortable with that. There's a difference between conservative Protestant scholars and a lot of Catholic scholars. The conservative Protestants want to say, well, everything in our theology really is implied or is at least the best explanation of what's in this, this and other texts. Catholic scholars, because they have so much broader tradition to argue from, a lot of times they're happy just to concede, yeah, in the first century, or if you like, early second. Uh, yeah, this is, that's what it meant. You know, if, if you read a commenter like uh, the great scholar Raymond Brown, he's going to agree with a lot of the stuff I said, but it makes no doctrinal difference to him. It makes a doctrinal difference to me because I accept the book not because the bishops endorsed it, but because I think it's from the apostles.
So to follow Jesus, I have to follow them because I think he competently taught them. But wait a minute. You said you weren't committed to authorship by the apostle when it came to the fourth gospel. For the argument of the paper, I mean, as a matter of fact, I hold a fairly conservative view. I don't, you know, believe in errancy, but I do think it was by John. I think he probably tacked on the last chapter himself. Okay, when I, I mean, the stuff that I read suggests that it was not by the apostle and mentioned not the gospels. So that seems to me, as far as I know, to be the dominant view. If not, I mean, if, if that's so, then there's a lot of other very early stuff. So why did you accept the decay or the shepherd of Hermes or that matter of gospel? Well, I don't think it's, yeah. Canon is a big conversation, yeah. The canon is a big conversation, but yeah, I mean, my view is that it's a late first century book. It claims to be by an eyewitness. Tradition says it's by John. I think the burden's on somebody to show it's not by him, the bulk of it. And so I, I take it that it is. I, I think that's one reason why it can be so boldly different than the other three gospels. It, it didn't feel a need to recycle Mark like Matthew and Luke did, whoever wrote those. Well, I think Luke wrote Luke, but it didn't feel the need to just, you know, add some more bits to the story. It tells it in a very different way, with, with very different language and some different concerns. About the canon, yeah, that's a, that's a big topic. Uh, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this. The movement seemed to have bumped along okay without a fully closed, determinate canon until the mid-300s. I think maybe it had been better if we left it not fully determinate. So then if scholars come along and tell us that Second Peter isn't really by Peter or something like that, we can just say, well, we won't consider this authoritative or we'll sort of put it on the edge and consider it uh, near the periphery and consider it less authoritative Right. That's, that was the status of Jewish scripture in the whole time of, in the whole first century, right up until around the year 200. Jewish scripture was still that indeterminate in, in its canon, and uh, Christian scripture was that indeterminate. You know, Athanasius gives us the first list of exactly the 27 books. We so. keep it indeterminate. You might as well say that the findings of the councils are part of the package. Why can one distinguish tradition from scripture if the canon? Is it in that sense? I'm not sure I follow your question. Well, okay, you say that there's no short list that's absolutely the scripture, right? Some things, there, there seems to be a borderline. I mean, why not accept, why stop at those particular writings? Why not allow that the, the rulings of the councils, like Nicaea and the rest of them, are also part of the past? Uh, <laughs> that's another big topic. Uh, but one reason is because on some central things, they seem to contradict some of the basic sources. That, that's one answer. But yeah, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Thank you. I know we're out of time. For listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>